Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Muna Abdi, and in this episode, we are in conversation with Bilal Harikan, a diversity and inclusion facilitator, award-winning podcaster, and plantain advocate from Northwest London. Bilal has been working across the world, facilitating sessions with a wide range of staff in industries from education to charity, to tech, to law, and he believes in creating space for uncomfortable conversations that drive meaningful change. When not doing this work, Bilal is also currently prepping to be a first-time dad and spending time at the allotment with his parents. I'm a huge supporter of the work that Bilal does and have been following him on social media for the last two years. If you're not already following him on Twitter, you can find him at Tweets by Bilal. He's doing some incredible work, so please do follow him. I'm grateful that Bilal was able to join us as the first guest on our podcast to talk about what it means to become an anti-racist to think about some of the challenges we face as facilitators in doing the work around anti-racist practice and to also share some tips and thoughts for our viewers on what they can start to do to become anti-racist and to start on that journey. Can you just tell the audience who you are, who is Bilal, yeah. how did you get into anti-racism training and what are some of the key pieces of work that you engage in? Wow, thank you, Muna. First off, I want to say thank you for having me on this podcast. I feel very honoured to be part of this, so thank you for having me on. Um, who is Bilal? Wow, that's like a deep existential question. I, know. No, I'm, I am literally just a normal guy, my upbringing. I was brought up in northwest London. Um, to a two-parent family where um, I'm mixed race so my heritage is I'm half Jamaican I'm half like South Asian Kenyan as a lot of people can probably relate to and my upbringing in Northwest London very much I start there because it framed who I am in terms of the work that I've gone on to be I'm um, growing up in Brent uh, for anyone who knows Brent as a borough in London is super multicultural so I think at one point in my life it was actually the most multicultural place in the UK I think something like most people in the borough were born outside of the UK and so growing up there um, my context being I'd never really been exposed to traditional white England because I lived in like this little bubble of my of my upbringing and you know spent most time with my family etc etc and that sort of upbringing I think framed my interest in talking about race anyway because I think when you're mixed race so there's a question mark over your head your whole life anyway you have to answer questions about where you really from and like explain who you are and literally I'm nine I'm not meant to be doing it (laughs) And um, when I think when I, you know, left school um, and went into uni, um, I, a lot of my work was very much focused on youth work and working with young people. And at the time, what I remember having a job where I was working specifically in youth safeguarding, so thinking about young people affected by gangs and affected by youth, serious youth violence and sitting on a safeguarding children's board. And it was there that I was like, you know what, man, like my passion really is for these young people who are being are disproportionately stopped and disproportionately affected by this violence who are non-white in the world, particularly in London anyway, not in Glasgow. And you think about um, how that 
manifests in terms of what led there, what led young people to be in those positions. So my life work became about youth work, you know, and I worked in the youth sector for a while, designing workshops and programs about social justice and all of that stuff. But at the time when my the charity I was working for was super funded by um, corporates, which was sick because we had loads of money, but it was terrible because the corporates didn't know what they were funding, right? So they were funding programs about young people, knowing that it's probably the right thing to do, but not for any reason. And my role then became a lot in sort of designing workshops for them, working with them to figure out what the issues were. And around that time also, you know, if you find yourself talking on panels and invited to speak and the things that you're talking about are always the same sort of themes about inclusion and race and class and the intersections of that stuff. And that's when I thought, oh, this is an actual job. It's not like I was 14 in school and someone said, you should be a diversity and inclusion facilitator. I didn't know that was. And then it's like more I found myself here by, by nature of constantly speaking about race and inclusion mm-hmm. and left my full-time role um, where I was a manager of facilitators to go into facilitating full-time uh, mm-hmm. while ad hoc freelancing um, on diversity and inclusion specifically. And the more I spoke about race, the more I realised that it's actually that that I wanted to, to do moving forward. And that's sort of how I ended up here, really, facilitating in anti-racism, because it's always mm-hmm. been sort of the unasked question in my life, but also the unanswered one too, and just ended up working with organisations, businesses across the world, unpacking what that means for them. Yeah, and that's a really, really, your journey is, is such a close connection to my own yeah. in, in in a lot of ways and a lot of people that I've spoken to that do anti-racism training talk about how it's informed by their own journeys and the, mm. and the things that they've encountered along the way and nobody plans to go into this yeah. piece of work but there's there's such a necessity that you feel as though this is almost your calling to yeah. go into that go into that space and I started off like you I was I was a youth worker particularly working with young men who were at risk of joining gangs there was a lot of things with the education system that I just couldn't understand and that I was frustrated with and all of their experiences with the criminal justice system kept returning back to experiences that they had in school Mm. and so there was just a connection that you just couldn't ignore and I found myself going into spaces bringing those connections together and started to talk more deeply with about the school to prison pipeline around mental health and always bringing it back to what is it about our education system that is inherently flawed and yeah. is affecting this particular demographic of people. And then it just ended up coming back to being something that's really personal. I ended yeah. up seeing these young men as my own nephews, my cousins, my brothers, and them experiencing the same things that I saw family members experiencing. And so when people were inviting me into rooms to eventually talk about some of these things, it felt as though I was talking more about issues to do with race than anything else. So it just made sense for this to be <laughs> the line of work that I was doing. And the fact that I could do the work and also feel as though I'm making a difference to my lived experience and my lived reality and not having to just be passive mm-hmm. in these systems that just sometimes feel really suffocating. Mm-hmm. It helps when you're doing this work and you know I'm earning money um, yeah. by doing something that is changing a system that I, I'm going to be a part of the system regardless, whether it's part of my job or not. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that really sticks with me, actually, because when I think about it, a lot of the driver for me was seeing, similar to what sound, sounds like for you, seeing um young people being affected by a system and going, it's 
great that for the most part young people you know are forward thinking and wanting things to shift and change but how is it possible that things will shift and change if there isn't the systems or the even understanding as to what the mechanisms of the system are from the people at the top or the people who sit in positions of power and even now whilst I don't work with young people as much as I'd like to or anywhere near as much as before I know that this work that I'm doing now is for the benefit of young people even if it's not directly I'm not sitting in a room with them yeah absolutely because you're influencing and you're impacting on the system that they're going to have to go through yeah that they're navigating their way through and I think that is the part of the work that we're doing is dismantling these systems one one person at a time one organizational leader at a time so what does anti-racism actually mean because I know a lot of people at the moment because of Black Lives Matters and because of George Floyd they're very keen to push forward this work around Mm anti-racism and it can sometimes be um, conflated with work that is generally around diversity and inclusion so what does anti-racism mean for those that are listening yeah man um firstly it's a shame that it gets conflated because it's and also um it's a shame that it seems like a horrible word I think for some people and I just want to start with that like yeah because it's not anti-racism is really not like this horrible scary enterprise that like we don't want to deal with I think it's so useful to just start by by sort of getting rid of some of those fears for individuals um to me and I say to me because I know that there will be people who have their own opinion um to me anti-racism is really as you said already the word dismantling it is about dismantling something that is systemic um as well as recognizing what an anti-racist mindset might look like for me as an individual so it's the two levels it's not it's, it's about like dismantling something large as a system of racism but also thinking about my everyday thoughts my everyday actions um, how can I embed anti-racism and I say that because there's a tendency to devolve oneself of responsibility by thinking that anti-racism is like over there and thinking that anti-racism is about invisible systems and about invisible forces right but it is also about me and the part that I play because if we're all participating in a system surely we all to some degree are affected by it and can therefore do the work of anti-racism so what really is that work um, is firstly about recognizing what racism is when it manifests knowing that racism is not just specific words that you shouldn't sing along to in the club or that racism is not just specific forms of violence that might happen on the street but that racism occurs in other ways right and so it's really recognizing what those mechanisms and tools of racism are and once we've recognized it not just doing nothing about it and going wicked I'm glad I know that now it's like going well sick how do I move forward and therefore do something to tackle that be that in my school, in my organisation, in my home, wherever that might be. Um, how can I recognise what racism looks like in all of its forms when it shows up and challenge my own thoughts, my own actions? And also, if I have a specific sphere of influence to do something, which is more policy and process related, to begin to do that work too. Um, and it is an ongoing work. It's not like anti-racism is great. We took that poster off the wall or wicked we now have Fatima the ballet dancer or whatever it is that you want to do that you think is anti-racism that might just appear tokenistic Mm. it's just more ongoing what do I need to change in my thoughts in my actions how do I visualize racism every day and not just turn away and walk away from it 
Yeah, absolutely. So the individual responsibility, as well as recognizing that racism is ultimately systemic. And so therefore, we have a responsibility to be challenging things at an institutional level as well. I always talk to people about the importance of looking at anti-racism as both part of a process and an outcome. So we're thinking about where we want to be and what the end goal is. But at the same time, the end goal is never reached until we're focusing on the process as well. How do we begin that journey and it's one of the reasons why I call this podcast becoming an mm. anti-racist because it's about this process of turning into something and mm. becoming something that we're striving towards and it's aspirational so we're yeah. striving towards getting to a point where we no longer have a racist system and that may be something that we don't see in our lifetime but it's yeah. something that we still continue to do that work for and Ibrahim Kendi talks about the importance of hope yeah in anti-racism yeah. work as well we can't start this work unless we have the hope and um, that there is something at the end of it that there is some outcome where things can be dismantled and we can have equity and we can have um, the, the distribution of power, the redistribution of powerful um, equity that we need to have. Mm. So how do we start this journey? We, we both said that this is about acknowledging what racism is and how racism functions. But in order to do that, you have to have the language yeah. to be able to understand what racism is. So how can yeah. people begin to start developing that language? Yeah, I think how do you begin to start developing a language good question um it is about the circles that you find yourself in in the media that you consume because it's very easy to move through life not having to come out of my bubble let's use a covid word not having to come out of like this little circle that i'm in right um and it, it might be uncomfortable to suddenly start reading or listening to or whatever way that you consume media um to the stuff that isn't what you're normally comfortable with but I think it begins with surrounding yourself with terminology that might otherwise not normally come up for you like fragility or dehumanization or whatever those words are that might pop up when we're starting to look at what anti-racism might be um and it is about reading from other sources hearing podcasts from other places watching youtube videos etc etc um which wouldn't normally occur to you and I say that because often, and I don't, I'd be interested to hear what you say, actually. Often I think that the work of anti-racism um, is seen as the work of just white people, like to be anti-racist. And it's not, it's fully not, because if we're all embedded and part of a system, to me anyway, we can all therefore internalise or just hear specific um, tropes or ideas and consume media to that to some degree is steeped in and like it's all pervading racism no matter whether I'm brown or black or white anyway and I think the work of anti-racism therefore to go out of my way to learn terminology is still the work of my mum and dad and of my grandparents and of my friends because if what we're not used to is consuming specific words and being used to specific terminology then we also have to go out of our way to find that um it's and like i say it's not just the work of white people because it's definitely the work of white people as well who benefit the most from the system of racism um over time and contextually right now so it's also on both sides about how do i make myself feel uncomfortable but be comfortable with that discomfort yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. The work of anti-racism is all of our responsibilities, but that work looks different. Mm. Um, and so if anti-racism is about identifying and eliminating 
racism well we see it we all have to look at how we are impacted by this racist structure yeah. and this racist system differently and so a person of color who is doing anti-racism work and a person who's racialized as white that's doing anti-racism work will be going through a very different process yeah because was, they're they're engaging in the system really differently yeah it was really interesting actually now when you say that the other day i was in this workshop and i just asked everyone um it was an anti-racism 101 thing and i asked everyone just to spend 90 seconds writing down for themselves what racism is in the room were mostly white people and there was one black woman in the room um when i got them to read out their responses firstly out of 12 people there's 12 different answers to what racism is which says a lot but for them for 11 of the answers racism was describing something over there as experienced by someone else and someone the one black woman in the room had written my and me in her descriptions and definitions as to what racism is and it was really interesting just to see like sort of how positionality even comes into play when we start trying to define what it is and how we, we will experience it differently that for some people racism seen as like this external to me thing that's over there and for other people even in the description of it it's literally me like it's, it's embedded in my, my identity and how I've experienced the world yeah absolutely and I think particularly when you're doing workshops with people of color because their lived reality is so embedded in the racist structure they are talking about the impact of the system but they have a really acute awareness of yeah. the system as well and so they're talking about it in terms of policy they're talking about it in terms of practice they're talking about it in terms of structure and yeah. so I feel like a lot of the work that we do with those uh, groups is about finding the language to articulate what they're already experiencing and what they already have the knowledge yeah. and the insight for whereas yeah. I think when we're doing these sessions with those who are racialized as white because their lived reality in, in this in this white um, identity that they hold has been invisible and has been mm. unconscious they're building up the language to understand the system but mm. they're also building up the language to understand their own identities and yeah. how that identity is formed within this system of racism that we're talking about and so it feels as though we're starting at very different places yeah. when we have those groups so I don't know how you feel about working with people of color and those racialized as white when they're in the room together and you're facilitating mm. these sessions how do you uh, what are some of the challenges that you think you encounter in those spaces when you have those two identities in the room yeah oh man that was, so I've been asked this question twice in 12 hours I've never been asked it before and um, last night I was running a session with some people and someone literally asked me this and I'm like it threw me at the time because I hadn't thought of it and it's a good question um what I have found to be the dynamic is there are loads of dynamics but an overwhelming dynamic is almost the hyper visibility of a person who doesn't want to be hyper visible in a space right so if I am the one person who is non-white or the two people who are non-white in a room of white people when we're having conversations about race regardless of whether or not anyone saying anything about me or asking me anything just by me being present I am hyper visible mm. um, what that might bring up for me are previous feelings of having to have the burden to educate or having to have the burden to explain or the burden to just just do nothing but just experience and walk off and feel 
annoyed or huff or harmed or whatever and this space can be a reminder of all the times before that I've had to do that um, regardless of as to whether or not anyone's saying anything um, it can be particularly challenging when white people are or people racialized as white in the room are realizing for the first time something which is someone else in the room's lived experience of every single day because whilst there's probably like a sigh of relief of thank god man you finally seen that there's also like how the hell have you not seen that and i'm literally here and this is my day to day you know and like now you're waking up for the first time which can actually further some of the feelings of tiredness or exhaustion because it's literally like what like my experience of the world is vastly different to joe who sits next to me at work so you know like how how can that be true that he's not even noticed that that's what's been going on for me and um, so how you navigate that it really is about the culture that you build from the start of any workshop um, anyway which is always about it is not up to anyone to share anything they don't want to share um, as much as lived experience counts and is real and emotions are data and valid and useful and we're going to use them and I would encourage people to be attuned to them um, no one's lived experience needs to be a, a lesson for anyone else if they don't want it to be if you want it to be that is literally like your call and I will create the space to do that but don't feel the pressure or the burden or the responsibility to have to, to educate. Um, I think because of that, there is the need, and I've found often, and you, I don't know what you've done, but like to find post-session, other sessions and other spaces that might be specific for people who are non-white or people who are black and are also experiencing racism or want to talk about the topic more in a room without people who are realizing for the first time yeah. um, because I think those spaces are different in that they're a lot more cathartic and they're less about realizing something it's just a lot more recognizing uh, the effect and the impact it's had on me and therefore what do I do differently or what do I need to know um, or be aware, attuned to in a different way to people who are thinking more about right I need to change my my way of think, seeing the world and I think for me I definitely do that in the sessions that I organize privately so mm. if I do it through my organization I make sure that if the sessions are going to be open for the general public if I notice that there are individuals in the room or people of color I will offer up time after yeah. the session to debrief and to talk about some of the things that have emerged but if I'm doing it for organizations I have to be really really clear as you said earlier on about making sure the expectations of the room Mm. Are, are set that there are group principles mm. that people are asked to abide by but also this notion of self uh, safe space we have a conversation about what safe space is yeah in that it's not really possible to have a conversation about race and anti-racism in a space that is going to be safe for everybody in the room yeah because you don't know what people's lived experiences are and you don't know what they're bringing into that space and so that conversation is really helpful for, to get people thinking about mm. what they need to do um, to create a space that is respectful and mm. that is a space that is for learning so it's purposeful and a space where people can feel as though they can contribute but they don't have to contribute yeah. their lived experiences as well and that places a bit of shared responsibility on, on everybody in the room rather than you on, as a facilitator constantly reminding people yeah. about what the expectations are but this notion of safe space is something that I always feel as though I have to have 
that conversation at the start of the session, particularly yeah. if there is a mixed group and yeah. it needs to be acknowledged that this is not going to be a, a space that is safe for everybody in the room right now. Yeah, and I think, I think often, because, you know, that takes time, that sort of building that culture and that group agreement and setting it up as a safe space for conversation. Mm-hmm. And often, particularly organisations, as I'm sure you're aware, don't have the time for a session or want you to just quickly can you do one hour on anti-racism like, no no I cannot because that does not work for the things that we need to do to even set this space up as safe I can't do that you know this morning I was asked to do a half an hour workshop on white fragility and I just said no I was like find someone else or do not do it because yeah. it's not, if you can't have the time for this conversation that says a lot because people will be unsafe walking into it and there's so much groundwork that we need to set about how we can even move into these conversations just to get the group ready to even have a conversation and be in that space that is not worth it if we're going to take this as a rush absolutely and i think the 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 time is a really important thing that you've mentioned making sure that people are ready to be able Mm. to engage with this work and that they're almost scaffolded and guided into some of these difficult concepts. And I find that the the challenges that I have when I'm doing some of the training is I have to do a lot more scaffolding and guiding into the language that is around white privilege, Mm. that is around white fragility, because Mm. there is so much resistance to that. Whereas I think when you're going over what systemic racism is, what anti-racism looks like, and you're going almost through a solution focused um, outlook on what the workshop is, you have a lot more buy-in and there's a lot more engagement so do you find that a little bit of resistance as well when you're engaging with some of those new language around white fragility white privilege and what does that resistance look like in the room i'm cracking up because this this (laughs) thing happened last week man i was facilitating this workshop um with a client on and it was a session that's a specific part of the workshop was about white fragility and it was, I was, I joined late. I was a bad facilitator that day and turned up a little bit late and it was on Zoom, right? And the other facilitator had been genuinely trying to take the time to get to this bit, which I was meant to run, which was mm. on, but she'd obviously sort of got there early, earlier than I'd intended anyway. Um, and when I turned my camera on, I turned on Zoom and she had just said, so what is white fragility? And I kid you not, what happened, crap, I'd literally just turned <laughs> and I just burst out laughing right here because what happened was this guy just went it is a horrible nasty racist word and I don't like the word at all because it makes me upset and it's not a good word and it's very racist towards white people I burst out laughing because I was like it's almost like someone planted in there (laughs) agility and to just do it um and then the funny the funniest bit that happened was like another member of staff calmly unmuted themselves and in a three point argument, just took him down and explained how exactly what had just happened there was white fragility. Um, which and I, it was funny, man. It was so funny to me. But it made me think about how defensiveness can rear its head and how often it does. Particularly yeah. when people's understandings of terms are totally different to what they might mean. And they don't really grasp what the what's behind the term but they grasp the term itself and take it in a different direction, you know, in the same way that people might do with privilege. Um, Mm. They understand a bit of it, not the whole point of it, and therefore get defensive. Um, And what that reminds me of is just sort of when we all experience the world different ways and we all consume different media and are part of different conversations, how we might get a different end to the stick to what someone else gets, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons why I always emphasize the importance of language, because that defensiveness always comes from somebody interpreting that language through their own frames of reference. Yeah, I'm not privileged because I'm working class. So therefore, I've worked hard to get to where I am and privilege is associated with money. I'm not fragile because fragile is assuming that I'm weak. And by saying that you're being racist, et cetera. And immediately it's about slowing the pace of the Mm -hmm. session and saying, let's start right at the beginning. Let's have a look at the word. What does the word actually mean? And that calms people down. But that initial defensiveness is always, it feels like it's almost a visceral response Mm. Like there's an emotional response to something that you've just said and they feel attacked in mm. that moment. And sometimes it's feeling attacked because you're, you're questioning the merit by which they've been able to achieve things or mm. it's about they feel as though you're, you're attacking their, their morality. Yeah. You're saying I'm not a good person because of this or you're saying I'm not a good person because of that. And it's so interesting to see how language can shift the dynamic in the room. So if we were just to talk about white privilege without using the words white privilege, I don't think I'd have as much resistance Mm -hmm. in the room. But as soon as you start off um, um, a session and say, right, we're going to be talking about white privilege, what is it? Immediately, you can see lots of uh, defensive responses. You'll see silence. You see people's face change. Um, it's, It's so interesting to see how people interpret language and immediately respond to language without doing and I do a lot of my sessions with educators without doing the thing that they always ask their students to do which is have a look at the language that you're (laughs) the words that you're using and define it and start at the very beginning and so I'm constantly saying to them what we're doing in this session is modeling what you ask your students to do yeah and this is a learning space so what would you ask students to engage with if this was a new subject area that they were learning they would do the same process and I think it's almost about just breaking everything down to the most the most basic elements and say let's just start at the very beginning what are these words what do they mean people can get sucked into a chat about semantics where what what then it's a great deflection tactic from actually engaging with the problem like Mm -hmm. we're not actually talking about what fragility affords you or denies others because now we're sucked into a conversation about the word itself you know not the actual outcomes or impact of the word beyond a word on a page um Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting that you have a similar experience because what i've noticed though since this year since everything that has shifted is that there is now less of a defensiveness around the word for not fragility there's still that around the word privilege than they used to be because I think the word has now become more widely spread and understood right and it's it was widely spread before but the understanding wasn't there there have been a lot more articles and talks and stuff which actually explain and break down what privilege is and isn't um, there's still some defensiveness but I've definitely noticed where that defensive might have been like a nine out of ten is now like a six you know and it's it's like okay we're getting to a point where hopefully there will be a shared understanding of terms now that we've got a shared understanding of terms we can really get to the roots and we can talk about the issues yeah and I, I think when it comes to the conversations around white privilege and I've noticed this over the last few months as well is because it's there's been so much buy-in for um, white privilege and there's organizations that are saying we want white privilege training for our leadership and for our staff etc it feels as though that that word has been used in the same um the same line of work as unconscious bias yeah it's important for us to understand what our white privilege is and how we use it 
um, just the same as it's important for us to understand what our unconscious biases are and how they affect the work that we do. And so you do have people that are engaged in anti-racism work that are saying the the language around white privilege is now too palatable. Mm. It's too soft because it's Mm. talking about what are the things that we have good that other people don't have good. Whereas there are people now that are doing anti-racism work that are saying we need to name what it is we're actually referring to, which isn't white privilege, it's white supremacy. Mm. And in my Mm. immediate response when I'm having conversations with colleagues around that language is, I've only just got buy-in into training sessions with people to talk about (laughs) white privilege. I don't know how I'm going to get them calmed down enough to talk about white supremacy and and what that is and how that, but that is the essence of what we're talking about in terms of systemic whiteness. but I genuinely, particularly within the British context, I genuinely don't feel as though we are ready to be able to name white supremacy in the context of what we're delivering in our training. And so white privilege is just something that we've, we've just managed to get into those spaces mm-hmm. and having those conversations. And yes, it's been co-opted. And yes, people are using it as a way of getting some tick box exercise because there are people that are delivering sessions on white privilege as one hour sessions, the same way they would deliver unconscious bias. Um, But that's going to happen with everything that we're doing. We see that with decolonizing the curriculum. Yeah. And it's like people want a hack. It's like they want the hack, right? Like how can I just, what's the quick bit? Give me the 10 steps to be (laughs) anti-racist or like, let you know, like what can I do now? Which I, which I therefore means I don't need to engage again or don't need to continue engaging. Right. Cause it's like, right. I get that concept. Cool. I've broken it down into like this bite-sized way that I don't need to do anything further with wicked let's move forward and I think if that's sort of the angle that people are taking and you've got it all wrong like you've literally got it wrong because it's not that exactly and I think there's there's such a big buzz at the moment around the work around anti-racism around white privilege that Mm. it makes me feel a little bit uneasy how people how happy white people on social mm-hmm. media are about how informed they are on these areas yeah so the, yeah. the reading list that they're sharing on social media the the podcast that they're um reviewing and they're talking about with their their friends in social media the things that they are circulating and the reading groups and things that they're developing i think it's really important the sites of learning but it just makes me feel a little bit uneasy how mm. popularized this has become overnight yeah. And it doesn't feel as though that's really translating into action. It feels as though there's a lot of performance online that people are engaging in this work. And I, I, there's there's not as much offline work I'm mm. seeing in this yeah. work as well. So we are busy in the training and the, and the line of work that we're doing over the last year because of yeah. things that have happened. But it still doesn't feel like there's nearly enough conversations happening offline as there need to be. Yeah, and you're right, because it's like, well, what's the impact measurement for this? You know, like, what is it that people are, what is it tangibly that people need to be doing? And often, you know, I get asked that a lot, like, what do we do? What do we do? And then I might say some things I think would be useful to do. But then what I'm often met with is, cool, so we need to have more conversations. Yes, you do. But that is not, that's not the end goal of anti-racism work is for conversation. The end goal is literally for the recalibration of mind and the therefore dismantling of systems and how we currently are used to them being normalized in operational function. So like it is about moving forward, right? There is, there needs to be a, a change. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, people are very happy with 
a reading list or a nice bookshelf or a podcast like list of recommendations and very much that is good and I you know I'm not going to pat you on the back for doing stuff you should have already been doing but that's not it that's not the end you know that is literally just one tiny spoon like that is that's not it that's not where we want to be getting to and I think moving forward like you said if people are only just getting comfortable with quite light and easy terms the point is that we get more comfortable with the stuff that makes people even more uncomfortable so that that can then be the bit that we're challenging and that can then be the next step yeah absolutely and a lot of the training that we do is just introducing people to the concepts introducing them to the language so that they're able to start having the more complicated conversations the more uh, about the system about policies about more complex issues that need to be addressed and so it feels as though at the moment what we're doing is literally helping people start the journey the training at the moment is just around this is the language that you need to know these are the concepts that you're engaging with this is what systemic racism looks like now go off and continue think about how you're translating that interaction think about how you're moving forward and it's a lifelong commitment that you're making there isn't a qualification at the end of this that means right you've become an anti-racist you can stop doing what you're doing now yeah it's it's ongoing work that you that you need to do and we need to be able to create those spaces where people can engage in that ongoing development and I think for organizations it's about constantly going back to them saying this isn't a one-day piece of training this isn't um the only thing that your staff need to do isn't just developing the language what is the institutional commitment you're making to continue to hold spaces like this but to also make sure that people are able to inform the Mm. decisions that you're making Mm. on a systemic level so that they can influence change because I think a lot of staff members I speak to just don't feel empowered enough after sessions to to impact institutionally so it feels like those sessions are very much around how do you think about changing the way that you think and the way that you behave on an individual level and then starting those conversations to move forward? Yeah, I think one of the, there's a metaphor a guy used yesterday in a session, which I really liked, because, you know, at the end you're wrapping up and he goes, I feel like what's now happened is that the mist has disappeared from in front of me and suddenly there's a huge mountain. And I was like, that's really cool, because what he mm. was explaining is, I didn't even recognize that there was this work that needed to be done before. And suddenly there's, I can see everything that I might need to do, but that's going to be a journey, right? And a hard one too. And I really, really appreciated that recognition. And in that, it kind of makes me think about um, what is, you know, what's the purpose of these sessions, like these sessions that I'm doing, you know, you often sit around and go, why do I do my job? And it, for me it really is that it's just about bringing people to the foot of a mountain to go now you've got to go climb that and actually do something with this language with this safe space that you have because I think the unfortunate thing is like you said we've been so busy this year people in this line of work right this has been like Christmas but it's um not not a busyness that I've I'm proud of in any sense like it shouldn't have taken the world to shift and the way the world shifted for me to be busy it shouldn't have also taken everyone else to be reactive Mm. for people to do what is now being done across the board across a number of organizations and institutions right and so often our work to any form of inclusion is very reactive Mm. as opposed to proactive and I really think that moving forward what would be 
interesting to see is 2021, 2025, 2030. Are people being proactive in their anti-racist approaches or are people waiting for another murder, another thing to kick off, another global pandemic? Like when are you waiting for something else to react to or are people going to proactively shift policy and process? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're going to see, this is where um, uh, my hopefulness comes from, is once people have that language, once Mm. they become aware, um, and unfortunately it has taken some of the world incidences that we've seen for people mm. to, to read those books, to listen to those podcasts, to have those conversations. Once that mist is cleared, you can't unsee what you're seeing. Yeah. And so I yeah. think we're, we're going to get to the point, if we're not already, where the idea of unconscious bias is not going to be something that people can fall back on, yeah. or this idea of I wasn't aware isn't going to be an excuse that somebody can fall back on because they've had the opportunity to get those, that information. Those conversations have been happening outside of their workplaces and within their workplaces. And so I hope we can get to a point where we either see people moving towards anti-racism work meaningfully, mm. or we have um, the tools to be able to now hold people more strongly to account. To say yeah. you cannot use willful ignorance as an excuse anymore because the, the, the mist is cleared. Yeah. We're talking about this nationally, we're talking about this globally. So you're either moving in the right direction or we now can clearly hold you to account for being negligent. Mm. So I think particularly with organisations like the education sector, their reasoning has always been around that we haven't had the access to information or we haven't had the knowledge or um, we, we haven't known what was broken in the system. And I think COVID-19 and Black Lives Matters have just clearly shown us all of the ways in which the systems around us are broken yeah. and were designed to be that way and are no longer fit for purpose. And so I think moving forward, 2021, 2025, 2030, we will see a shift that will be really polarised mm. and we won't see those individuals that sit themselves firmly in the middle. Mm. The, the people that identify themselves as being the not racist, the mm. neutral ones, the passive individuals, it really is going to be you're on one side or the other. Yeah. You're either doing anti-racism work or you're complicit in racism willfully and knowingly yeah. because that yeah. that ignorance isn't going to be an option. I think that's one of the good things that's coming out of this more public, widespread language and understanding conversations around anti-racism that are not going into a lot of detail. Yeah. Yeah, and they're at least visible for the first time yeah and I think that's it it's the visibility and the accessibility the access to you know words mm-hmm. and language and conversation in a new way which hasn't been seen before in my current lifetime and um, which makes me hopeful like you that you know that that will be a shift when in terms of where we are because even now there's like a reticence from some organizations not from all to use unconscious bias as a term because people are now thinking right like let's we can't let ourselves off the hook like let's actually attach ourselves and be accountable and hold some level of responsibility which is wicked and you'd, you'd hope that moving forward that terms like that which are the pat yourselves on the back sort of language and semantics will move away from that and people will be a lot more attuned to actually taking themselves on on being more responsible um, for being complicit in systems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if we're saying that this journey is a long journey, it's mm. a lifelong journey and we're, we're trying to avoid creating a tick box exercise that people can go through and 
how to be an anti-racist. Mm. How do individuals start the anti-racism journey? We've talked about reading books, we've talked about podcasts, but how can that meaningfully translate into action? What would you offer as some suggestions to those that are listening to the podcast on what they yeah. can do as some meaningful first steps? Yeah, um, I'm going to offer suggestions and I'm going to include positionality in my suggestions purely because it's relevant to my response. Mm. So I would say that if you are racialized as white and you have white friends to talk about whiteness with your white friends. Why? Because black people and non-white people are always having to talk about being not black or non-white with their black or non-white friends. I don't really see many white people having to do the same, particularly to think about how that benefits you. So that's one suggestion. I'd also say that if you are a parent or have children around you, um, just to think about what is it that your children are consuming in terms of the books that they're reading. Um, are the characters who are the central characters in their children's books or in the shows that kids are watching, are they non-white? Um, why, if they are white kids, then what does that say about who they, who children grow up seeing in positions of power or leadership or as protagonists versus who they see as subsidiary characters and what do they therefore consume moving forward in the world? So to diversify that pool for younger children, because I'm thinking generationally, like moving forward, how we can affect change there. The other thing that I'd say is in terms of like how we can continue this is really to challenge yourself in terms of social circles that you're in um, if you find yourself in very comfortable social circles or in social circles with a load of devil's advocates maybe move out of those circles or maybe find other places that you can be in where you can actually expand your horizons in terms of people's lived experiences of being on the receiving end of racism and also people's understanding of what systemic racism is um, there was this guy in a session the other day who said to me that he felt upset that he lived in a little village somewhere don't know where where everyone who knew was white and all his friends reminded him of himself and he didn't know how he could get himself out of that circle and how he could hear about anything that wasn't whiteness and I did say that he also has Google. So I would say to use what's available to you as your tools so that you can actually expand your horizons and find other avenues for connecting with people or other avenues where connecting with stories and ideas um, so that you are not just sitting in that social bubble. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bilal. Those are like amazing tips. I don't even have anything else to add to them make sure that you're looking at your social circle make sure you're aware of the materials that you're bringing into your home and how they're influencing um, particularly the children because this is a generational work that we're doing you're absolutely right and really thinking about what you can do to make a difference moving forward within your different spheres of influence and people mm. often find it but that they find it the hardest to engage with their inner circle mm. in this work because that is where the relationships have been the most embedded and the most established and it's hard to challenge people when there is such um, a strong emotional tie yeah. with the people that you're, you're trying to challenge. And so I think as a starting point, having some of those just conversations about language, what mm. it means to, to be white and what the lived reality of that is in the world that we're in is really, really an important starting point. And you're right, people that are racialized as white don't have those conversations because they've never had to have that aspect of their identity named. Mm. And I often talk about the fact that this work in becoming an anti-racist for people that are racialized as white can be quite traumatic initially 
because mm. you're unpacking and you're dismantling what your entire lived reality is and the world that you've been navigating your way through without ever having to consider yeah. the, the yeah. basic things that other people consider on a day-to-day basis and so it's not easy work but I think it's a really important starting point. Bilal thank you so much for spending no, thank you, with me and for sharing your time. Please let us know how we can reach you. Um, what are your what's your Twitter handle? What work yeah. have you got on going that people can check out? Yeah, wicked. Um, check me out on Twitter. It's just at tweets by Bilal. Um, I've also got a podcast with three of my friends um, where we just talk about mostly race and identity related experiences in the world, which is called Over the Bridge Podcast, which you can find on any of the podcast channels that are out there. And I'd really recommend people checking Over the Bridge. I feel like I, I watched one episode and then I was I was like <laughs> watching for an entire day because it was just so <laughs> But Bilal, thank you. thank you so much once again. Thank you, Muna. It's been a pleasure. When we choose to be anti-racist, we become actively conscious about race and racism and take action to end racial inequities in our everyday lives. Being anti-racist is believing that racism is everybody's problem and that we all have a role to play in stopping it. Bilal has shared some really helpful thoughts and strategies on what you can do to start to begin your anti-racism journey, but I want to share with you just three more. And these are the three R's. Read, reflect, and remember. Read and educate yourself on the effects and impacts of structural racism. Reflect on what this education now means for you as somebody who is developing their anti-racist identity. And remember, remember how you participate in your thoughts, beliefs, and actions in ways that either uphold racism or challenge racism on an everyday basis. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode with Bilal Hari Khan. Please do follow him on social media and engage with the work that we'll continue to do as part of this podcast. You have been listening to Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. <laughs>